It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. After an electoral drubbing in 2018, few in Washington believed that Republicans had much of a shot of winning the House back in 2020. For one, no party had lost control of the House in a presidential election year in more than 65 years. But Republicans had other challenges as well. First, many of their own incumbents were calling it quits, including six from Texas and what some are calling the GOP Texodus. See ya! Plus, a number of those Republican retirements were in the kind of suburban districts that Democrats picked off back in 2018. And despite the beating Republicans took in the midterm election, President Trump was doing little to nothing to try to win over these one-time Republican suburban voters. If anything, his actions and behaviors only served to solidify suburban opposition to him and the Republican Party. Finally, the Democratic freshmen have been raising boatloads of campaign cash. According to a hotline analysis, 35 freshman Democratic incumbents amassed at least $1 million cash on hand by the end of September, including 17 of the 22 freshmen who sit in districts that Trump carried in 2016. But the prospect of an impeachment fight has some wondering if this could be the thing that turns GOP fortunes around. Could it help Republicans recruit elected candidates to run and help drive more money to the candidates and campaign committees? One person who's been thinking about this is my colleague at the Cook Political Report, David Wasserman. Dave has written about the impact impeachment could have on 2020 and recruitment. I started off our conversation by asking him how that was going for Republicans. It's going reasonably well, but it's not just about how many Republicans are getting into these races. It's about the types of Republicans getting in, particularly in the suburbs. We all know that Republicans had a terrible problem with both women voters and electing female candidates in 2018. Part of the reason they lost so badly in the suburbs was women. And of their 31 freshmen in 2018, there was only one woman, uh, Carol Miller from West Virginia. Well, Right now, the majority of top recruits in uh, the top target districts uh, where Democrats are vulnerable are Republican women. And we still don't know whether many of them can make it through primaries. That's going to be a key test. But to see people like uh, Nikki Snyder, Michigan Board of Education member, jump in against Alyssa Slotkin, particularly at the time she did, right after Slotkin and her colleagues penned uh, a letter calling for an impeachment inquiry – You wonder, is this something that would have happened anyway, or are we seeing an uptick thanks to this push? Do you hear from these candidates that that was the issue that pushed them into this race? It's a a big factor. Now, there are some candidates who are saying it's not their key motivating Mm -hmm. factor. Um, There are plenty of Republicans running in districts that Trump did not carry in 2016, uh, seats like Orange County, California, where these Republicans don't want to make it a referendum on Trump or impeachment. But there are undeniably others who are using impeachment not only as a rationale uh, for, for running to defend the president, but also as a way of raising money. Up until this point, Democrats have absolutely clobbered Republicans in the money chase, in part because they have massive fundraising lists from the blue wave of 2018. Republicans in many of these districts are starting from scratch. What's going to be interesting to see is over the next fundraising period, when we get the reports in January, do we see a big jump from the reports that we're seeing today? Because we are seeing presidential candidates, the campaign committees, running fundraising emails and texts saying, 
if you support impeachment, if you oppose impeachment, send us money, right? Are you seeing that from individual candidates too? We certainly are. And we're seeing it from the RNC as well. Mm. Ronna McDaniel made very clear that she was willing to launch campaigns, fundraising campaigns tied to uh, to targeting Democratic members who had come out in support of an impeachment inquiry, particularly in those 31 districts that voted for Donald Trump. Dave, I've talked to a couple of those frontline freshman members in the swing districts. We had Elaine Luria on a couple weeks ago. I was struck by how confident many of these members feel about their decision to call for the inquiry. I hate to say it's too early to tell, but it really is because this is just getting underway. And the polling so far is murky, right? We see a strong majority, and by strong, you know, these days that's 55 to 57 (laughs) percent of voters say they support opening an impeachment inquiry. Now, when it actually comes to removal of the president, that polls, you know, still remarkably strongly compared to where it might have been two months ago, somewhere in the 50% range. Fox had it above 50%. But what that means is that in the swing districts, in a lot of these bellwether districts for House control, that number is still under 50%. Right. uh, Because after all, uh, even though Trump didn't win uh, the popular vote nationally, he carried 235 of 435 congressional districts. And so... These members are dealing with a a very difficult calculus. On the one hand, Democratic voters and their donors would see it as an abdication of constitutional responsibility not to pursue this this line. And they feel pretty personally strongly, especially those who have served in national security roles, that this is something that they need to pursue. But uh, on the other hand, This could play into Republicans' arguments in those types of seats that while the president is focused on the economy and jobs, Democrats are only focused on him. And they're running ads saying such a thing in some of these districts. Has there been a significant amount of money behind these ad wars? Republicans went up first, the Republican campaign committee, making that exact argument, Dave, that you made that these members were elected to to serve their constituents on bread and butter issues, they're abdicating their responsibility because they're so singularly focused on ousting President Trump. Um, and then I saw that the Democratic super PAC, House Majority PAC, also has been up with ads in those districts defending those Democrats. So that's a long way of asking, is impeachment now getting a lot of attention in paid advertising in these districts, maybe more than you're seeing in other, uh, you know, sort of nationally. It's more at this point about keeping up the pressure on these members. Uh, the the RNC bragged about raising half a million dollars in the first 24 hours in a district in Michigan. Uh, but what this is going to do is amp up the focus of donors on the House. Uh, what will be really interesting to see is in this November's elections, do we have Uh, a clear indication that Republican enthusiasm has increased thanks to the president being under siege by Democrats. And if Republicans manage to sweep the governor's races in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Kentucky, if Democrats somehow fall short in one of the legislative chambers in Virginia, that might start giving more Democratic members from these districts pause. And One interesting factor to me is that um, there's a clear reason why Speaker Pelosi is hesitant 
to hold a vote on opening an impeachment inquiry, and that's that this is still a matter that divides Democrats, particularly those Democrats in those red districts, more than it divides Republicans. So even though there are only now a handful of Democrats who have not said that they support an impeachment inquiry, you still think this is dividing Democrats? In order for Democrats to make the case to voters that this is a matter that's so serious that Congress has to pursue it with all of its might and most of its oxygen, then Democrats need to to demonstrate a united front. If they were to hold a vote tomorrow, they would have defections uh, from Democrats, uh, people like Colin Peterson in Minnesota, Jeff Van Drew in South Jersey, Anthony Brindisi in upstate New York, members who uh, who are in, you know, in districts where the political reality is pursuing impeachment would likely lead to to losing re-election. Even a handful of defections would, I think, put a dent in Democrats' case. Dave Wasserman, thanks for coming on and talking about this with me. Thanks so much, Amy. To test out Dave's theory, we tried to talk with some Republican candidates who have recently announced their candidacies. Did the prospect of impeachment push them off the sidelines and onto the political playing field? We did get a hold of Republican former state rep Dale Crafts, a potential challenger to freshman Democratic rep Jared Golden in Maine's 2nd District. Trump carried this rural northern Maine district by 10 points. Earlier this month, Crafts told Politico, It certainly sparks something in you when you see this bombardment against our president. But while he wanted to talk with me, he told us he was deep in the Maine woods moose hunting And, well, there's not much chance of getting Skype to work out there. He did offer to speak with us next week. But I knew there was one person who could talk about the role the impeachment inquiry was playing in energizing Republicans to run for Congress and whether or not it's boosted fundraising. This is Parker Hamilton Poling. I'm the executive director of the NRCC. Parker Poling is in charge of making sure that Republicans have the candidates and the resources to win congressional seats in 2020. We already had pretty huge enthusiasm on our side. We've already had 705 Republican candidates file for Congress. And our previous high watermark was 2010 when we took back the House. And at this point in the cycle, we had 497. So we were already seeing the leftward drift of kind of the House Democrat majority was has been motivating candidates from the beginning. But I do think there are some, a few that aren't quite yet ready to announce that are motivated by the impeachment proceedings. What do you think is different this year than in 2018 in terms of the motivation for candidates to jump in? I do think it's, you know, sort of, as I said, the extreme leftward movement of the majority between, you know, kind of the squad leading the way. But I think a lot of people are looking around and feel like we're at an inflection point where the party is really the the Democratic Party has turned towards socialism and it makes them really concerned about the future. And I think the Democratic presidential battle is accentuating that as well. Um, obviously, it's, you know, a race to the base. And um, I think a lot of our candidates are really see that and want to want to do something. Talk to us a little bit about how these last three weeks or so since the impeachment inquiry process began, what it's meant for fundraising for the committee and what you think it's meant for fundraising for individual Republican candidates. 
Yeah, I mean, I think especially in sort of the small dollar um, digital fundraising has been just through the roof. Um, huge enthusiasm from Republican base voters to um, defend the president and to help elect Republicans who will, you know, stand up for the processes that we, you know, have always followed in this country and also stand up to this baseless um, inquiry. So it has been a huge fundraising push for us and um, really just organic of people stepping up and, you know, responding to things that have never given before. And we've seen that, obviously, we've seen that the NRCC, the RNC, um, they just released their September number, which was a single month record for any party committee ever. When all is said and done, do you think that the issue of impeachment is going to be front and center in 2020? I mean, for us, what the issue of impeachment is important to us because it is distracting the Democrats from the promises that they made. A lot of these Democrats in swing districts said, I'm going to work across the aisle. I'm going to get things done. My priorities are lowering the cost of prescription drugs, of fixing health care, of getting a trade deal done. And none of those things are happening because the majority is so consumed by this impeachment process. How does a Republican candidate sort of manage the top of the ticket? I mean, those candidates need to talk about themselves and what they want to do and what they believe. Um, You know, we are both, as parties, going to have conversations about the top of our ticket, um, whether that's, you know, on the Democrat side or on our side. But I think the most important thing for these candidates is to articulate what what they're for, why they're running, um, the roots in their community and what is motivating them and the change that they want to be a part of um, in Washington. So I, I think it's so much more important for them to talk about themselves and what they believe and what they've done and why they're running than it is to worry about um, the presidential race, which they have no control over. Well, it's funny because in 2018, a lot of Democrats took that same advice, right? Mm-hmm. They talked much more about themselves and their background than they did about the president. Right. And that is similar advice <laughs> you're giving to Republicans running in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Parker Poling, thank you for coming and talking with me today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Earlier this week, I sat down with Congresswoman Sylvia Garcia, one of the record number of Democratic women elected to Congress in 2018 and the first Latino elected to represent the Houston area. She also sits on the Judiciary Committee. If articles of impeachment are drafted and voted upon, they will come from this committee. But before we start, a quick disclosure. I first met Garcia in 1992. I was working for the Women's Campaign Fund, and we contributed to her first run for Congress. She lost that race. I asked Congresswoman Garcia why Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, was overseeing the impeachment inquiry rather than the Judiciary Committee. Every committee has their own jurisdiction. Every committee is still continuing their work. But the thing that has surfaced more recently in real time, real time, that's something that we're going back to and trying to get records and get documents and get people to come here and testify about things that have happened before us, it's Ukraine. So he's got it now because that's what's happening now. But if they decide that an article impeachment needs to be drafted, uh, they'll make that recommendation, perhaps even send us a draft article of an impeachment, and that will be referred to judiciary, and then we'll take it up in judiciary. Same thing with Chairwoman Waters decides that 
she has an article of impeachment she will refer it to us oversight all the different committees they all ultimately have to end up at judiciary correct and it is the vote that takes place in judiciary oversight over a lot of issues that that are related to uh impeachment but ultimately we are the ones with your jurisdiction on impeachment right so you would put article if this were the case that it brought the case to judiciary you would put articles of impeachment together vote on those and then depending on the vote it would go to to them if you're ready ready to to. because it's a referral so it's like any other referral for anything else you review the referral if we think more uh um hearings are necessary more information more documents we think or if we think it's ready we'll we'll just tweak the article and uh, decide if if it's going to be that one article or more and then decide what we'll formally present to uh, uh, the Congress as a whole. So given that it's now October, are you... The middle of October. Middle of October. Doesn't feel like it outside, but it is the middle of October. There had been talk earlier that the House would like to have a decision one way or the other on impeachment by the time Thanksgiving rolled around. That seems right around the corner. Is that at all possible? From my understanding, all the chairs, uh, leadership, all the members uh, are on notice that we're going to do whatever it takes to do our jobs and to hold this president accountable uh, and to do the work uh, for the people that we were asked to do. Uh, If I was told today that I needed to stay through the weekend to do hearings over the weekend, I would. I think all of us were prepared to stay this last two weeks when we were in recess if we needed to. So I think everybody is prepared to do whatever it takes. And it's not because there's some goal or some timetable, but because we think the people deserve action and as quickly as we can do it. Uh, So I, I still think that it's possible that we might get a referral before Thanksgiving and certainly that we would have something uh, before the end of the year. All I can tell you is that every member I've talked to is ready to do whatever it takes to get to the bottom of this, to hold this president and this administration accountable because no one is above the law, not this president, not you, Amy Walter, and not me. No one. Is there also a concern, though, if this goes into 2020, for example, if, as you said, your committee could get this information and say, we need to actually do more hearings. I do, we don't feel comfortable with what we have in front of us now. As we get into 2020, is it, does it get harder to make the case for impeachment when you're getting closer to an actual vote in November? I haven't really thought about it because to me, it's not about the politics. It's really not even about this president. It's about, you know, restoring the faith in our system and, and bringing hope to, to Americans that and, and just reassurance that no one is above the law and we've got to do the right thing. I, I remind everyone and I remind myself that I've taken that Constitution and that Bible more than once. I've been sworn in to several offices and I swore to uphold the Constitution and the laws of this, well in some cases state and this country. That's what we need to keep in mind is upholding the Constitution. We cannot worry about the politics. We cannot worry about the personality. We need to do the right thing to uphold our Constitution and the trust that comes with it. So I'm not going to try to second guess whether or not something is right for 
the political gain I think we need to do right for the people. I talked with Congresswoman Garcia about a few different topics. You'll be hearing more from her in the coming weeks. But impeachment did come up again when we were talking about the issues her constituents care about. I did four or five senior forums. I did a veterans forum. I did a um, Imelda, which, you know, we, we had a big tropical storm, a storm resource forum. I did a public safety forum. Ask me how many times impeachment came up. How many times did impeachment come up? Once at the very last senior forum. So do you think that my people were, are worried about recovery from the storm, they're recovered, about insurance, drug prices, health clinics, jobs, and immigration. So Washington is overthinking impeachment as an issue, you think? I think it is, but, but some of my colleagues in their districts get different responses. You know, we, you know, like I said, I have a working class district. I got big applause when we said we, we, we passed the uh, minimum wage. They just wanted to know how quickly it was going to start and how much uh, and how they, we were going to enforce it. When I talked about reducing drug prices and making sure that insulin would be more affordable, big round of applause. You know, which other one got big applause? And everyone that we passed the bill to stop robocalls. I mean... It's what makes people think about the bread and butter issues. They're not concerned in my district about impeachment. Congresswoman Sylvia Garcia is a Democrat representing the 29th Congressional District of Texas. We spent the first half of the show talking about the House, but now I want to pivot to the Senate. Jennifer Duffy, another one of my Cook colleagues, follows Senate races, so we sat down for an update. But first, I had to ask her about impeachment. Well, one, these Republican incumbents are doing a lot of tap dancing right now, working very hard not to answer uh, any questions. Susan Collins of Maine says all along that she's a juror, so she's not going to talk about it. But when it comes to impeachment in the Senate, I will make my most unpopular statement first, which is that the chances of getting 20 Republicans to vote with Democrats is slim. They'll get some Republicans, but 20 is a big number. Then we'll go to really what I think is at the crux of impeachment for incumbents up in 2020. It's all about timing, especially for Cory Gardner in Arizona, Martha McSally and Susan Collins, because they're getting squeezed from the right and the left. Will filing deadlines close by the time they have to take this vote? There aren't as many Democrats that have to worry about this kind of vote. There's only one Democrat in a really red state, and that's Doug Jones in Alabama. We don't know what he's going to do. How is he tap dancing on this? Uh, Tap dancing is a good word for it. He's he's sort of taking the let's see what happens approach. Democrats really do send this to the Senate. They better have more than they have now. They better really have that smoking gun. The other thing that Democrats in the House need to remember is they cannot muddy the waters up. No bringing up 2016. No bringing up Robert Mueller. This has to be clean. The other big news was that the FEC filing deadline was Tuesday. We saw a number of 
high-profile candidates release their numbers, some impressive, some not. What did you take from these FEC filings? I think that there were some surprises. Susan Collins' opponents, or likely opponents, Sarah Gideon, raised over $3 million. I'm not surprised by this. This was her first quarter. She's raising a lot of money online, especially from women who are upset about Collins' Kavanaugh vote. I was more interested in who struggled to raise money. On the Republican side, two incumbents, I think, really underperformed, Tom Tillis in North Carolina and Joni Ernst in Iowa. Now, they both outraised their opponents, but Tillis just barely outraised the Democrat, Cal Cunningham. The other surprise that nobody's really talking about is in Michigan, where the Republican John James outraised incumbent Gary Peters. He brought in $3 million, which is a decent haul for a candidate no one is talking about right now. I think this is going to end up to be a much closer race and certainly Democrats want. And I think that even most people who pay attention to the Senate believe. But it, I think at the end of the day, both parties are going to be spending money in Michigan. One person who raised a big chunk of money <laughs> in the third quarter was Amy McGrath, who is challenging Mitch McConnell. Didn't she raise something like $10 million? She did raise about 10.5, I think, which is an incredible haul. As somebody said, oh, my God, Amy McGrath is the Beto O'Rourke of 2020, just in putting up really big numbers in a hard state for Democrats to win. She got off to a rough start. And because of that, she handed Republicans a lot to work with. And remember, she ran for the House in 2018. Uh, it wasn't a friendly district for Democrats, but it wasn't as hostile as many in the state are to Democratic candidates. And she still came up short. To run statewide in Kentucky is a whole different story. So she's got a lot of work to do. Don't forget McConnell runs great campaigns. He's going to have the resources he needs. you know. But de what Democrats really want is to keep him at home and worried about his own race. And they'll probably achieve that. I want to talk about something Elizabeth Warren mentions a lot. If Democrats are going to be successful, if she's going to be successful as president, they need to have control of the Senate. So the first question is, how likely is it that if Elizabeth Warren is elected president, she could bring along with her a Democratic Senate? I think right now it's less than 50 percent. Mm. And I'll tell you why. If she's the nominee, she probably improves things for somebody like Martha McSally in Arizona, maybe Gardner, certainly Tom Tillis in North Carolina, because she is going to be portrayed as so liberal in these states that don't normally embrace liberal candidates. What Democrats really need to do is make a couple more races competitive. Mm -hmm. North Carolina is going to get there, but will they make Iowa competitive. I am still skeptical about Georgia. But let's see what happens. They have some time to make one or both of those seats competitive. Well, the other ones that get mentioned at some points are Montana, if Steve Bullock decides to abandon his run for president and run for the Senate, and Kansas, where Chris Kobach, who, very controversial Republican, lost the governor's race to a Democrat last year, is running again. Right. So here, I will make you a rare bet, Amy. Mm. I will bet you a latte. 
does. A grande latte? A, you can have a venti latte <sighs> that Steve Bullock does not run huh. for the Senate. As for Kobach, as Republicans sort of refer to him, our problem, I think that if it looks like he is winning, I think you will see the Republican establishment go in and try and take him down. What's happening in Kansas right now to Republicans is frustrating, and that's Mike Pompeo. Secretary of State who represented Kansas in Congress hasn't definitively said he will not run. It's freezing money. I think it's freezing the field. But honestly, in the wake of the whole Ukraine stuff, I don't really view him as an exceptionally viable candidate right That's now. That's what I was going to ask you. If Why focus so much on Mike Pompeo, who's now bringing in a whole lot of baggage? Just find any other candidate in Kansas. Right. Well, there are fine. candidates in this race that they're happy with. Yeah. Sue Wiggle. There are a couple that they would just be fine with. They just need to keep Chris Kobach off the ballot. Jen, before I let you go, anything else that we should be talking about that we're not when we look at the Senate? Because, again, the focus really is almost exclusively on who will have 50 votes in 2021. Well, for right now, it's driving the debate. I think that some of the interesting things, and this is only, you know, for a pure Senate junkie, Democrats who have been able to clear primary fields with no problem. This is a cycle that they're struggling to do that. Georgia, Iowa, to name a few. Maine. North Carolina. They're not clearing these fields like they used to be able to. And we'll have to see whether or not that Mm. becomes problematic for them because they can't focus on the GOP incumbent or they're forced to move too far to the left. Another race that isn't going to get a lot of attention, but I find interesting is Ed Markey in Massachusetts is getting a primary from Congressman Joe Kennedy III. And actually, I was fairly surprised by Markey's money. He, he raised just over a million. And I know what kind of effort they put into this quarter. That was a much lower number than I expected from him. Mm. So he may have more problems in this primary than I originally believed. And that would be a big upset. Mark, he's been in Congress for how many years now? 40, yeah. 40 plus. He spent most of that time in the yeah. House. John Duffy, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. I'm going to enjoy my latte. Well, I was just going to say, I like mine extra hot and oh. skim milk. Okay, you I like mine skim and, and iced. Ugh. Okay, I'm going to agree to disagree. Okay. Bye. Bye. Earlier this week, 12 of the Democrats running for president gathered on a crowded stage near Columbus, Ohio, for the fourth Democratic debate of the year. In the center of that stage were the three top polling candidates, Vice President Joe Biden, Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. But just to the left of Senator Warren stood the candidate who would have a standout evening. That candidate? We also don't agree with Senator Warren that the only way forward is infinite partisan combat. Yes, we have to fight. Absolutely, we have to fight for the big changes at hand, but it's going to take more than fighting. Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Third quarter fundraising reports were also due this week, and we learned that Buttigieg has a lot of cash. He raised over $19 million this summer and still has over $23 million in the bank. Recent polling from Iowa, 
where he has more offices than any other candidate in the race, show the mayor rising and sitting in fourth place. Which leads us to wonder, is the Buttigieg boomlet for real? And can it last? For some answers on this, I reached out to Elena Schneider, a national politics reporter for Politico. She followed the rise of Mayor Pete from early on in the campaign. I caught up with her the day after the debate. She joined me from South Bend, Indiana. I've been on the Buttigieg beat basically since the rest of the country started to pay attention to him, which was, if you date it back to um, about mid-March of this year, when he was on CNN doing a town hall. CNN had that whole round of candidates coming in and doing those hour-long town halls. They really caught fire online and sort of had this viral moment when he compared Mike Pence to sort of the cheerleader of the porn star presidency. Is it that he stopped believing in scripture when he started believing in Donald Trump? And so basically from that moment on, I've been covering him. Can you tell us a little bit about how we got to this place, how he got to this place? So Pete Buttigieg wanted for a long time to introduce himself as a unifier and as somebody who who could offer an alternative way from the fighting that Warren and Sanders present, but not a return to sort of old school politics the way that Joe Biden does. What I will say is we need the kind of vision that's going to win. We cannot have a vision that amounts to back to normal. And that's sort of a tough needle to thread when you're still trying to simply introduce yourself to the American people. We can have great presidents at any age. Throughout the first couple of debates where we saw Pete Buttigieg on stage, he was not really confrontational. Around the world, we will do whatever it takes to keep America safe. He very much tried to sort of present the rise above, deliver his sort of aphorisms that, that he's become sort of known for, these really crisp one-liners that he, he is able to sort of distill these major policy problems into sort of clear explanations. College affordability is personal for us. Chasten and I have six-figure student debt. That was a more positive way of talking about issues. Last night, we really saw a change in that he was much feistier, much more willing to be confrontational, and much more willing to take on candidates and draw serious contrasts and even try and draw a little blood. Congressman, you just made it clear that you don't know how this is actually going to take weapons off the streets. If you can develop the plan further, I think we can have a debate about it. A yes or no question that didn't get a yes or no answer. Your signature, Senator, is to have a plan for everything except this. I don't need lessons from you on courage political or personal. He also has more money in the bank now than almost any other candidate but for Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. How did he get all of that money? And what is the campaign's plan, how they intend to spend it? I know they're investing a great deal on the ground in places like Iowa and New Hampshire. But what else are they going to do with that, do you think? I mean, he started with less than nothing back in January when he sort of did the soft launch of his presidential run. Nobody knew who he was. He had maybe two or three staffers that that worked for him. And that was basically it. And so the transformation to sort of see that very shoestring operation into this multi-million dollar effort is remarkable. Mm -hmm. And it started with the CNN town hall where he just went totally viral and and drew a ton of small dollar donations out of that. But then he's also just a very articulate, well-spoken, compelling person with a really interesting, unusual biography. And that's really appealing to donors who max out to you. So all of that uh, cash that Buttigieg has been able to stockpile over the last several months, he's now 
really investing that in the early states. And it was something that journalists like myself looked into how little footprint he actually did have in these early states through late spring, early summer, when he really didn't have any infrastructure on the ground and couldn't yet capitalize on any kind of momentum he might be building nationally. But now that he really has the resources, that's really starting to sink in into places like Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. He's got more than 100 staffers on the ground in Iowa. He opened something like 20 to 25 offices just last month. And so I think that there's a real focus and attempt to drill into this all-important state because he knows that in order for him to move forward, that he has to finish in the top two or three in Iowa to sort of get a bounce of momentum into the rest of his run. And even though he's late to the game in terms of organization, I mean, somebody like Elizabeth Warren or even Cory Booker has been organizing and and laying the groundwork in Iowa since February. So he's certainly coming much later than them, but he benefits from, from having an enormous bank account to dip into, but also really being able to lean into some national momentum. One of his biggest challenges is that he's been unable to reach into um, communities of color. And I want to know if you have seen any evidence that that may change or that his campaign is doing something different in order to attract those voters? So his campaign and Pete Buttigieg himself are deeply aware that this is a problem. In terms of what they're actually trying to do to change that, they have hired a a pretty large group of people who are devoted to focusing on those constituencies. Mm. And I know that there has been a particular focus in trying to hire people who who are diverse and who represent the whole of the Democratic Party, which obviously is heavily non-white. But, you know, again, sort of staffing and, and talking about it isn't enough to sort of get you over over the edge. I mean, they, they would say that that people of color just don't know Pete Buttigieg, and that's part of the problem. And, and now it sort of just comes down to him spending time in places like South Carolina and Nevada making his pitch to those groups of people. But, you know, look, there, there are some real hurdles that he has to deal with. He's got a number of things that he's got to do to address this community in more aggressive and more clear ways if he hopes to make any kind of real inroads there. Elena Schneider, national politics reporter for Politico. Only God could create this path. Only God Only God could create a path where the son of two sharecroppers from Manning, South Carolina, could rise to represent the people of the 7th Congressional District in the Congress of the United States of America. I wanted to take a moment now to remember Congressman Elijah Cummings, who passed away on Thursday at 68 years old. The words you just heard were among the first he spoke when he addressed the U.S. Congress after being sworn in in April of 1996. In tributes across social media, Cummings is being remembered as the kind of politician who reached across the aisle. Congressman Mark Meadows, a Republican from North Carolina, tweeted, There was no stronger advocate and no better friend than Elijah Cummings. I'm heartbroken for his wonderful family and staff. Please pray for them. I will miss him dearly. And here's Senator Lindsey Graham. He was a good man. If you disagreed with him, that was okay because he would help you where he could. I think he represented sort of the the best of what a congressman uh, is like. He always uh, never left his people behind, and he always tried to work with people that were different. 
Democrats and Republicans alike paid tribute to him on the House floor on Thursday. It's a sad day for this institution, and it is a sad day for America. There's many times he'd be an adversary. He was a respected adversary because he was tough. He believed in the promise of America because he had lived it. When I approached Mr. Cummings, he didn't ask me what party I was in. He didn't ask me what my political philosophies were. He didn't care about partisanship. I can't tell you how many friends would call me and be in fear because they got a letter from Cummings. He belonged to this Congress, Republicans and Democrats, and he belonged to the nation. Brought peace where there was no peace. A few of his colleagues in the House shared their stories and thoughts with us. Hi, I'm Harley Ruda from California. My most poignant memory of Chairman Elijah Cummings was when we were discussing House Bill 1, which addressed issues on voting rights. And in his incredible voice, uh, sounding like a preacher, he reminded all of us that his mother on her dying deathbed told him to remember. Do not let them take our votes away from us. They had fought, she had fought and seen people harmed, beaten, trying to vote. Talk about inalienable rights. Voting is crucial. And I don't give a damn how you look at it. There are efforts to stop people from voting. That's not right. The passion that he delivered that sermon to all of us uh, is a firm reminder that we have to make sure all Americans have the right to vote and uh, take the opportunity to vote to make sure that our country is properly represented by all of its people. This is Congresswoman Catherine Clark. Congressman Elijah Cummings was grace and generosity personified. Every day, in ways often unseen, he worked to lift up every voice. His love for the people of Baltimore and the entire country will live on through his work and the community he helped to build. May his incredible legacy bring comfort to his family, friends, and dedicated staff. Hi, this is Congressman Mark Green, and I I just want to share an intimate reflection of Elijah Cummings, I had had cancer, and of course he was struggling with health issues. We had many conversations about just the frailty of life. I deeply respect uh, what he did in Baltimore when the riots were going on. He was uh, a guy who stood up for what he believed. He was someone that I respected as an adversary. We didn't necessarily agree on everything, but I know one thing we did agree on, and that is life is precious. We should use every minute that we have to live out the values that we believe. And I I know that Elijah Cummings did that. Some pointed to the supportive nature of Cummings. Here's Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy. I was the oversight subcommittee chairman for economic and consumer policy. So I worked very closely with Chairman Cummings. And I have to say that he was about as helpful and encouraging and supportive Uh, of our efforts as subcommittee chairs as as a chairman could possibly be. He was not about hoarding control. He was about empowering people and empowering members. And he was also somebody who was known for, you know, giving voice to the voiceless, you know, giving aid and comfort to the vulnerable. And 
I think that was in part because of all the adversity that he faced in his life that he was able to take that adversity and turn it into a positive for other people. And Congressman Jamie Raskin. Leadership asked me to go on the Rules Committee in addition to judiciary in this term, and I thought that it would be too much to stay on all the committees, and generally you're only supposed to do two. So I went to Elijah on the floor. We, I sat down next to him. I said, look, they're talking to me about going on the Rules Committee because I live so close and I could be here for the late night meetings and the early morning meetings, but it would require stepping off of oversight for this term. And he looked at me very unhappy, and he, and he just said, you know, we need you on oversight, so it's okay with me if you go on rules, but you're going to have to stay on oversight too. And I said, but I'm going to be on judiciary. And he said, that's right, you can do all of them. And I said, but Elijah, that, thank you, that's very uh, flattering and everything, but um, I might not have time to do all of that. And he said, and I'll never forget it, he said, uh, he said, Raskin, you always have time to be doing what you're supposed to be doing. Elijah Cummings was a dear, dear friend, a wonderful colleague, and really a North Star for so many of us uh, in both parties. Someone of unquestioned integrity and great moral leadership. Someone who had a voice that would boom out and move mountains. Uh, and a wonderful friend. We were in constant communication up until he passed. I had no idea it would come so soon. and. Uh, his loss is just uh, devastating to us all. That last voice there, Congressman Adam Schiff. All these tributes speak to the hole Cummings is leaving in the hearts of his colleagues and constituents. But he's also leaving a large political hole that's going to be difficult to fill. As chairman of the House Oversight Committee, Cummings played a crucial role in the impeachment investigation. He was trusted by Speaker Pelosi and his relationship with members across the aisle gave him bipartisan credibility. As the impeachment inquiry ramps up, that credibility, experience, and trust are going to be missed. Cummings built this reputation with time and effort. It can't be easily replaced. And with that, we'll give Chairman Cummings the final word. Here he is giving the commencement address earlier this spring at Morgan State University. And I want you to understand that you have something that I don't have. If I could buy it from you, I'd buy it. I'd give everything up, my wife and kids. At 68, I've now lived longer than I will live. Your lives are in front of you. And so I beg you to go out and stand up for this democracy that allows us to have this great university that allow us to be able to do the things that we're doing, that allow generation after generation of our people to rise up. That's all for us today. This week's show was produced by Amber Hall and Patricia Jacob with help from Rob Gunther. Engineering and sound design by Jay Cowett and Vince Fairchild. Polly Rungu is our digital editor, David Gable is our administrative assistant and chief baker. Our executive producer is Deirdre Debke. And of course, call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. <laughs>